Last Sunday we had the Apprentice Sunday, fabulous, best ever. But tonight, on the box for the first time, controlling all things technical, is Marissa. It is great to see you, girl. Well done. All right, grab your Bibles, everyone, and I'll tell you where we're headed um, this evening. And go to the middle of the book, Psalms. If you have it on your weapon of mass destruction, you can go there as well. Psalm 105. This evening was supposed to be an evening of worship and dinner. And uh, when we as a staff just got together to explore whether we should stay in that rhythm or not, Dana said to me, Dad, I think, I think you need to teach. I think I've taught once or twice this summer. And she said, Dad, I think you need to father the moment. So if I do really badly tonight, you can toilet paper my daughter's house. No, I, don't, I, was, I didn't mean that, Meryl. That was just a slip of the tongue. Um, but but I, and I, went to, I took it to God and I felt like, yep, there's a, there's a moment, there's a truth, there's a truth cluster that I needed to just take some time and talk around this evening. I'm going to speak fairly, fairly quickly. I apologize for my accent to those of you who are newer and welcome those who are here for the first, second or third time. But this evening, I do want to father us a little bit. If I had a title and I'm really not good at them, I, I, I want to become better, but it's God, Joseph and his many robes. And Psalm 105 is a, is a praise It's a little bitty verse, a couple of verses around the Joseph story that the poet summarizes. So we're going to pick up in verse 16. He, being God, called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. Then he, God, sent a man before him, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. I'm reading the NIV. There we go. We're close enough. Um, and his neck was put in irons. Until, until the Lord, the word of the Lord proved him true. And the king sent and re released him. And the ruler of the people set him free. He made him master of his household. Ruler of all he possessed. To instruct his princes as he pleased. And to teach his elders wisdom. The story behind the story. Obviously, having been preaching for 40 years, you preach from Joseph. That just goes without saying. However, a few years ago, what caught my eye was the fact that it's the only story told in Scripture which is garment-related. It's a bit like a New York fashion moment. There's this crazy, as we'll see this evening, this crazy evidence of Joseph changing garments. A little bit like a piece of theater where he changes garments because there's a new uh, moment um, that he is about to walk through. Hold that thought for just a moment. One of the other big ideas that we've explored this summer has been around the issue of the shadow self, false self, and the true self. The shadow self, we kind of arriving at an understanding, is the, are those areas of your and my life that we don't want others to know about. It could be areas of sin. It could be areas that someone else has sinned against you. Um, and the great gospel word there is expiation. Um, and, uh, but, but we sit on it. We hide it. And Tyler did such a great job two weeks ago talking around out of Porto, the Larsons, 
um, about creating a God-love community. What kind of community would be safe for people to come in and tell their story, no matter how dramatic and uh, emotionally jarring it may be? Now, we want that kind of community. To Caleb's point earlier on, that's why we do life around the dining room table. This is fun. I really love this. I don't know why people tire of it. It's a wonderful time for us to gather together, worship like crazy, encounter God, say hi to friends, wrestle with the scriptures. Um, but I'll cancel this any day, any day, and we have many times, and not cancel the time around the table. That is our highest virtue. That is the gathering time that's more important to us than about anything else. So the shadow self is something that is tucked into the recesses of all of our souls. And part of God's agenda with us is to extricate it, to draw it out, to go fishing in our soul. Uh, Richard Raw, what was the quote I read you today? We are poor stewards of our soul. And this is an example of it. The second is the false self. Now the false self, I'll read is that part of us that we learn to create or adjust or adapt to in a given situation. Richard Raw said, it is your role, title, and personal image that is largely a creation of your mind. So that's what Instagram has offered us, a great opportunity to present a false self. We all know it's not true, but we scour the Instagram and TikTok endlessly to try to find out what someone else's false self looks like. It's that which we create intentionally. Well, you say, um, you know, my mom and dad, this is what I needed to be like to have them smile at me, so I became that. Then my peers at school, this is what they kind of wanted me to be, one of the cool kids, so I became that. I know, because I was from South Africa in the, amongst the Afrikaans community. That's kind of redneckville. And so I went to high school in an English-speaking community, which were the cool kids, the surfers and the rest. And I decidedly was out of place, so I played the game. I cussed louder than anyone else. I fought harder than anyone else. I did whatever I could to become the cool kid. I wasn't that kid. But I felt in, or, in order to be accepted, I became that kid that I thought. The only problem is, dear friends, with our false self, it is exhausting. Because we have to keep it up. The moment you create this image, you are obligated to keep it up. And can I say that even of church, I listen carefully when people leave church. And oftentimes it's the false self. So they come into community and they look around and they go, what does it mean to be part of Genesis? So I'll play that game. I'll do those things. I'll dress in that way. I will use that language. I will worship in that style. The only problem is it's a false self that's exhausting to try to sustain. And so eventually we lose touch with who we are and we say things like, well, I'm going to leave church. Um, it's done nothing for me. I don't know who I am. I've spent five years and I'm nowhere closer to knowing who I am. My dear friends, because you have tried to survive on a false self platform, we would rather you are who you are. You do what you do. A friend of mine leads a church up in the Pasadena area. And there was a, um, a guy, his dad came in from Honduras as a, as a refugee. He was a soldier in the Civil War. The word was out. There was a hit on his head and get out the country. So he came here as a political refugee. The son, David, was mad. Hated anything white. Hated anything prosperous. And certainly hated the white man's evangelicalism. A friend invited him to Terry's church. He would literally sit here on the floor 
and on more than one occasion would f-bomb it terry would say something and he said well that's effing bs now does our church have room for that man is this a God-loved community who could cope with someone who is authentically wrestling with the challenges that are in his soul? Or would you say, shh, 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 this is awkward. This is embarrassing. Please don't say those things. This is a church we don't F-bomb anyone else. Well, the beauty of it is he married a white girl. He got wonderfully saved, and now he leads a community that we've planted in Nicaragua. But someone, Terry and the team, had to cope with the fact that he would not put on his false Self. He would not present himself as a white evangelical until he got wonderfully saved and God got a hold of him. And then thirdly, the true self. Again, Richard Raw said, it is who you are objectively from the beginning. How God has made you in mind and heart from the beginning. You are the pearl of great price. Now, dear friends, this talk tonight is really the journey from the shadow false to the true. And my heart for all of us, including me, is that we would be able to step into this space and this story with courage, with honesty, with vulnerability. No pretense. There just isn't room for the pretense. So let's go through Joseph's wardrobe. Are you with me? Okay. Exodus, please, chapter 37. If you've been around the church for any period of time, you would know the story. Here it goes, if I can find it in this little bitty Bible of mine. I want you to pick up the challenges here. This is an account, verse 2, of Jacob's family line. Joseph was a young man of 17. He was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Behla. I'm sorry? Genesis 37. I apologize. What did I say? Exodus. I love, were you not listening to the Lord? There was a whisper in the tree, but you were obviously caught up with a compressor. Hey, you can do that when you've been married 42 years. You know what I'm saying? All right, here we go. Let's try again. Sorry about that. No, it's not your fault, love. It's everyone else's. We know that. <laughs> Joseph, a young man of 17, and tending the flocks with his brothers, sons of Behla, and the sons of Zilpah. Oh, my word. And the father and his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And here it comes. And he made an ornate or a coat of many colors. This is a complicated family of origin story, as is yours. In fact, it would be true to say his pa was a really poor father. We all are. I mean, Matt Larson isn't, but the rest of us all are. Because we may be good at a few things, but there are things that we are particularly not good at. We sat with someone recently who found it incredibly difficult to acknowledge that his parents were not perfect. Because in his mind, it created a narrative that said, my parent, parents were perfect. Any issues were mine. But fathers are generally one of these A's, and I just use them for fun. Absent. They may even be present, but are absent. In mind, in engagement, the jolly phone, iPad, work, 
whatever it may be, disengages us from our children when they dearly need us. Honestly, I've not done many things well as a dad, probably five things. But the one thing that I'm really glad we valued as a tradition is that we would sit at the table every night. Even if we had a meeting, Meryl would make soup, and we'd have soup and salad, and we'd have 30 minutes together around the table. And every day we asked each other, how was your day? And good was never an answer. Because we had to dig in to find the true emotional words that described who we are and who we are in that moment. Secondly, abusive. Now that could be verbal, physical, or sexual. And the trauma and tragedy as an example of the first self that we tuck away and we forget. Thirdly, ambitious, in which they declare what they want us to be, even if it's just not true. Now, can I just bag on Orange County for a moment? Tian played for a really good soccer team at one stage, and they won every game till they didn't. And at the end of the game where they played particularly poorly, he was about 10 years old. All the parents said, good job, great job. I wanted to say, you're all a bunch of liars. They played really badly. Tell them. Because we put an ambition on our kids that they're always good. My brother coaches rugby and he said of one particular boy whose heart was broken, his dad said, you can become a national player. You can be whatever you want to be. And the kid believed it because his dad drilled it into him every day. But he didn't make the A side. And you will understand the ranking system. He didn't make the B side. He didn't make the C side. He was fighting for the D side. And he wept with my brother. My my dad told me I could be a national rugby rugby player. And my brother had to say to him, my precious boy, you will never make the A side. It's ambition. We think it's a good thing. It really isn't. When Tian played soccer, forgive a few personal illustrations. I didn't do many things well. This is one. After every soccer game, we'd go and sit at In-N-Out or... uh, Farmer, farmer boys, whatever it was, and we would green yellow red his game. My boy, what did you do the play that we, you were good at? And he'd sometimes think, and I said, you've you got great IQ. You've got great soccer intelligence. I, I thought the way you read that moment was genius. And then yellow, well, he kind of drifted in and out of the game mentally. That wasn't good. That wasn't good. You've got to stay in the game. Your team needs you to stay in the game the whole time. Red, Well, you lost the ball because you were selfish. You were preoccupied with yourself, trying to promote yourself. The team needs you to be selfless. What do you think, my dear, dear friends, God does with us? Oh, well played. You screwed up last night. I love it. You had a one-night stand. Amazing. Well done. Of course not. No, it's a quiet. Yeah. I'm like, say something. Quickly say something. <laughs> Absent, abusive, ambitious. Approval. Where we spoil our child. We give them whatever they need. We bow to them. They are the center of our familial universe. We just indulged in 1989. Bruce McIntosh, psychologist, coined the term the spoiled child syndrome. And that is what Isaac gifted Joseph with. Do you know how much Joseph had to go through to get to where I'm hoping to get to, which was the purposes of God for his life? God had to strip Joseph down because his dad loved him more than the other boys. 
addicts, affection and correction. Now, can I just speak lovely? Most of you are single in the room, and most of you will be parents, and most of you will consider it. I'm asking you, under God, do not spare the rod and spoil the child. Now, I'm not saying spank like crazy. I'm not even saying you should spank. Our kids, we did. With due discipline, I never hit in anger. We'd send them to the room, quieten our emotions down, go in and sit with them and say, what did you do wrong? You tell me. How many do you think you should get? That I think I should get two. You're right. Sometimes they said four. I said, no, that's it's way too much. We had a little wooden spoon called Noddy, and they kept trying to hide it from me. Tuck it away that I couldn't find it. But true fatherly affection is accompanied with correction. Let me speak soul to soul with you. Your dad and mom had a huge imprint on your life. You can't ignore it, forget it, neglect it, push it down as if it didn't happen. True liberty comes when you take the coat of many colors off. Whatever coat your pops put on you, and I've said to my kids, you must do the same. Take it off. Because God wants to give you His robe. But you're not going to get it until you take this one off. Number two, sibling rivalry. Not just is it about daddy's boy, but it's about sibling rivalry. Chapter 37 of Genesis, verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, folks, your siblings, can, can I say this? Man, this, be very carefully about, careful about your familial culture. Two of the most powerfully destructive tools in the hand of combative siblings is humor and, gosh, the other one's gone out of my head now, Meryl. What's the other one? No, oh, no, you don't know. Humor firstly. Maybe the other one will come back to me in a moment. Where we use humor to tear each other down. Oh, you look fat. Ha <laughs> ha, it's funny. Oh, it's incredibly damaging. We use these tools, and we are the or the, the, the receptors of this deep injury that comes from our siblings. Why am I even talking about this tonight? Because Joseph had to get free of what his brothers put on him. They took his coat of many colors. They dripped it in blood and took it back to his dad and said, Joseph is dead. And they put on him the garment of a slave, selling him to the slave masters, the slave drivers who were on their way to Egypt. Sometimes our siblings, and we do it to each other, we suffer under perfection. We've got a brother or a sister who does everything right, and the parents say with very poor knowledge, well, why aren't you like so-and-so? Look, they, they, they get, they're in uh, honors class, and, and they play volleyball, and why can't you just be like them? They're kind. Well, why, why can't your room look like theirs? That notion of being perpetually compared to someone else, another sibling, is highly, highly destructive. Or, and perspective, where you are never seen. Your perspective doesn't matter. You are bullied until you agree. Your opinion is never valid. 
I'm sharing these things with the Father's heart because I want to see you find truth and liberty in your story. Now, if none of this is true of you, pray for the person sitting next to you because it may be true for them. The perfection where you are compared to your sibling, the perspective where you are silenced. We don't want to hear from you. Just take what we say to be true. And then prejudice. Your life choice is always the poor choice. They enslave you to being and becoming what you really are not meant to be. And it is brutally painful. Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, speaks of the Psalms this way. He says, there are Psalms of orientation. And that is when God uses the Psalms, the poetry of the Psalms, the songwriting of the Psalms, to orientate ourselves to Him. And then there's a period of disorientation. Those are the Psalms where God strips off us the things that are unhelpful in our spiritual journey. And the third are the set of Psalms that deal with our reorientation. And there are times, you, you know, you bring that sibling thing in here. We all do. And we use language like brothers and sisters and family. I had one man who was courageous enough who looked me in the eye and said, please never talk of the church as family. My family destroyed me. There is no good in that word. Please don't use it. Thirdly, are you still with me? Chapter 39, Meryl. Okay, there we go. Now Joseph, from verse 1, had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, the Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of Egypt because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything. Potiphar, on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. But he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. If this is a series of things that we have to walk through in order to attain and achieve, not even achieve, become who God wants us to become, this is a huge one, dear friends, and it's called sexual identity. Carl Truman, in a great book, Strange New World, writes, In biblical times or ancient Greece, sex was regarded as something that human beings did. Today it is considered to be something vital to who human beings are. Now, this is a very difficult one to be brief with tonight, and I have to be. It's a deep, compassionate, and complicated matter. But can I say this, dear friends? Our job as boomers was to fight, the Zulu word meaning the point of the spear. Our point of the spear was social justice, particularly in the area of racialism. Did we do a good job? You decide. In South Africa, we marched. I remember marching with the ANC and the Communist Party against apartheid. 
remember being preached, I mean, preaching against apartheid and having the FBI equivalent come and meet with me. We're listening to you. We're watching you. We had to fight against racism. And our battleground was South Africa. Your battleground in America is sexual identity. It's by far the frontline conversation that you will face. And what happened to Joseph? Is there anything we can learn from him? Well, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, for a moment, use your imagination. Can you imagine how he must have felt with this advance? He'd been a favorite son, a slave. Now he was a man of some position. He must have thought he was styling. That this is cool. I mean, I am in a cool place. And then he is further validated, being a fully man, by the wife of Potiphar. She must have been a good-looking guy because the rich people generally get cute little people. And, um, but, but, but whatever, whatever, this is a moment of high energy. Richard Raw again says, the first half of life issues... The big concerns are identity, security, and sexuality. Who am I? Identity. Security, where am I safe? And sexuality, how do I express my gender? Now, what if Joseph took the line that post-modernity offers? Be true to yourself. What would he have done then? Probably slept with her. Because I cannot imagine the man in him did not want to sleep with a woman who was probably attractive, certainly wealthy, and she was an open book. She persisted in asking him to come and sleep with him. I've had guys in this room who've said to me, I have women call me and say, can we have sex tonight? Now in that moment, when all the sexual juices are going, on what basis do I say no? And, and, and hearing the rhythm of be true to yourself, be true to yourself, be true to yourself, beating in my ear. How could Joseph have said no? I think of no other reason than the drum beating in his, his ear was be true to your creator. <laughs> be true to your creator. My dear, dear friends. Decide well ahead of time how you want to frame the sexual identity conversation. Because in that moment, in that moment, and it will come, it will be too late. Seduction, persistence, your own sexual energy, attraction, curiosity, pressure will be poor matrices for decision-making that glorifies God. Poor matrices. You have to, in the kindness and goodness of God, say, Oh Lord, let me settle this thing now. I am a woman, and I will marry the man who will love me and nurture me and care for me, just like Jesus does his church, and I will wait for him. I'm not someone's sex object or sexual toy. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My Father has created me, His daughter, in His image and His likeness. And this beautiful body that I have has been set aside for that guy. It's a complicated subject that requires time. I'm going to ask John Mark if he'll teach us when, he, when they move here. Because it really is beyond me. 
But I can appeal that we settle these conversations now. Because when the juices are going, it's too late then. Sexual curiosity will hold you captive. All right, number four. You've been great. Thank you. Uh, Verse 8 through 20. I won't read it all, but uh, we'll pick up here. Where am I? All right, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He had settled it ahead of time. You are his wife. Can I skedaddle forward in verse 10? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, persistent sexual pursuance, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Aha, an enemy manipulated moment. One day, he went to the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. Danger, danger, danger. She caught him by his cloak, there it is, And said to him, come to bed with me. And he left his cloak or robe in her hand and ran out. The fourth garment change leads us into this most brutal of moments. And that is false accusation. That's when we're accused of something that is completely untrue. We are guilty until proven innocent. We are silenced and have no voice. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a brutal prison. And I think the lesson in that moment is that Jesus, like a lamb, led to the slaughter. We choose not to raise our gloves and fight. We choose to present ourselves to the Father. Because the Father said, remember, there was a reason all this was going to happen in Psalm 105. Because the Pharaoh will call him, and I'll get to that in a moment. Pharaoh will call him, and he has a job for him with his princes, with his elders, and with his lands. And there's a little word there in Psalm 105, until. You and I will both face the trauma of false accusation. It will happen to you. It's a dreadful, dreadful prison. But how will you and I handle that? It can produce anger. It did in me. It can produce bitterness. It did in me. It produced resentment and pain. It did in me. But when we silence ourselves, dear friends, and we posture ourselves in the hands of our Heavenly Father and watch Him do what He can do, That's when the true miracle happens. Number five, I'm rushing now. You have got a few moments for me, I hope. Genesis 39 and verse 20 to 23. But while Joseph was there in prison, so he had moved his garment, cloak of many colors, slave, servant. He's in prison. But the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness, Meryl's point, and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of those who held held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that happened down there. Verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. 
You know what interests me about this? And I've mulled over this long and hard. Why did Joseph have to go through that prison experience? This is my theory. I could be wrong. I think Joseph went there, dear friends, because he had to find out who his Messiah would be. In the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross, I think the 13th century, which is what this is, is that moment where we find ourselves in a spot unfairly. We're in the prison of someone else's false accusation. And in that dark night of the soul, we have to answer the question, who is my Messiah? Because what I read from the text is that Joseph wanted the warden to get him out. He didn't. Joseph wanted the butler and the baker, cupbearer, to get him out. And it said they forgot him. He said, remember, remember, when you get back to Pharaoh, remind him, I'm a good guy. I'm in prison unfairly. Can you make a plan and tell him I should not be down here? God says, well, I actually have it in my imagination. I see the Father and Jesus leaning over the balcony of heaven. Forgive my imagery. The angels are all quietly anticipating, saying, it's not you. It's not the warden. It's not the butler and the cupbearer. They are not your Messiah. You will not leave prison until you know who your Messiah is. Dear friends, two more years he was in prison. One little horrible verse. Can we cut that one out of the Bible? Can we just remove it? For two more years, Joseph was in prison because the angels sat back, the father sat back, Jesus sat back, and he was like, two more years, Joseph. It's a long time. It's 700 and something days. Because he did not know who his Messiah was. Gerald May has got a great book out on the dark night of the soul for those who want to read. But can I say in that time, please listen very carefully. It is a time of deep loneliness. I uh, sit with some of you who have a kind of a word of faith background. Amen. The head, not the tail, and top, and not breathe. I'm so happy, happy, H-A-P-P-Y. I'm happy, happy, happy. No, you're not. It's a false self. You are not always happy. Don't even pretend you are. And in the dark night of the soul, you will sit as I did when I went through a decade of that by myself in my apartment that I didn't even own. Meryl was off at grad school, and I sat there day after day. My phone dried up from being the cool young hip pastor in South Africa when my phone was on the boil all the time, and my emails were just coming, piles of them. God said, come. I want you to sit in an apartment you don't own. I want you to be on your own with no friends. I don't want anyone to call you because I need to do business with you. Does that fit into your theology anyway? Not really. Because we're H-A-P-P-Y. We're charismatics. But our friends, none of us will bypass this. Not one of us. We can try or we can get grumpy. No one phones me anymore. Yeah? That's a God-authored prison where you wear prison garbs because of what God has to do in your life, starting with your pops, stripping you off that garment, stripping you off your sibling rivalry garment, all the way through as God, the Father, the Son, and the angels peep with curiosity. How will he or she handle this moment? How does he? Beautiful. Go with me, please, to Genesis 41. 
I so dearly want all of us to leave today with a greater understanding of uh, where you are in the story of God. What is God doing in your life right now? Make sense of it all. Uh, Chapter 41, verse 14. So the Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon, and when he had shaved and changed his clothes, isn't that a ridiculous verse? Well, didn't Moses shave and change? Didn't Abraham do it? David, Jesus, never mentioned. Well, I think it's a very important verse because that is the defining moment in which Joseph is finally stripped of everything. And then notice, notice the beauty of this. Pharaoh comes to him and says, oh, I I, I had a dream. No one can interpret it, but I heard you can. It said that you hear a dream and you can interpret that the father, the son, and the angels are peeping. I'm saying, don't blow it. Don't blow it. Don't be the Messiah. Hey, listen, wouldn't it be tempting to say, dude, I rock. You want a prophecy interpret? I, I got it, man. I, I, I shouldn't have been in prison in the first place anyway. I got this. But notice what he says in this dark moment with the possibility of him going back to prison. But he's changed his garment, he's bath, and he's got a new garment on, and he's shaved. Listen to what he says. Oh, I cannot do it, sir. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And I think like winning the World Cup, like the English girls won European soccer this morning, Wembley Stadium, 87,192 people lifted their voices in celebration. England had won. And I think the angels, the father and the son said, yes, yes. Yes, in the moment of truest humility. Sir, I cannot interpret dreams, but my father can. That was the moment that God was waiting for. Now, most of us live with a now moment theology. In other words, if my moment now is not joyous, spectacular, celebratory, I'm happy, my friends love me, then I shrink into discontentment. And so we move from church to church, not realizing this is actually a God-authored moment. And I think we have to shift our now moment theology into a then providential theology. God, I don't get it. I don't get it. When I had my dark night of the soul, I handed over Southlands in 2010 for the next eight years or something before we started this community. I said, Lord, I'm in my 50s, my late 40s and 50s. I've been doing this a long time. Surely I can be of value to you in your kingdom. I negotiated. I bartered. I debated with God. I fought with God. And I just feel like my heavenly father looked down and I just felt his kindness and his goodness and his generosity. But son, you are not getting this, are you? And when I had my Joseph moment, when I shaved, bathed, put on a new clothes, and I said, this isn't about you. I'll go and hand out books. I'll pack chairs. Oh, 
right. You can start this community now, son. My ask of you, and I've got one more and I'm done. My ask of you is when the Father, the Son, and the angels peep over the balcony of heaven and there is this eternal pregnant pause, what will you do in that moment? Remember the power of humility. Because God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Joseph is trying to get himself out of prison. He's negotiating, fighting. Hey, don't forget about me. Hey, warden, look at me. Look how I sort things out. I run your finances. I'm a good guy. I do a good job. Two more years. Two more years. Two more years. Last point. Chapter 41, verses 41 to 43. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes, there it is again, of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and the people shouted before him, Make way! that he was put in charge of the whole land of Israel, of, of Egypt. Who was this? It's the guy who was trying to make a deal in prison. It's now vice president, president, depending on your definition, of a whole nation. And my dear friends, remember what was prophesied over him in Psalm. I'll read it quickly. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over, over all he possessed to instruct his pr uh, princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. That was what God had in mind. That's what God had. And in order for him to get there, and he was only 30, in order to get there, he had to go through his dad spoiling him, his brothers who were furious with him, a woman who falsely accused him after she tried to mess with his sexual identity, how he had to cope with prison and trying to manipulate the moment. And then God says, remember, this is what I had in mind all this time. When I was writing up these notes, forgive me, it's an in-house family joke. I said, this is the Nordstrom moment. Brief story as to why. When we moved here in 96, I was 38, Meryl was 34. And the first Christmas was brutal because we come from two very big families and the kids, the girls were 8 and 10 at the time. And so there'd be this huge, two huge family gatherings and lots of gifts and lots of food. And the first Christmas, we kind of looked at each other. We didn't really know the people in the church. Um, and uh, we, we just went crazy. We bought each kid about 20, 30 gifts. I mean, the tree was just covered with gifts. We felt completely guilty and yucky and horrible, and they weren't going to be with their cousins, uncles, aunties, grannies, and grandpas. And there was a beautiful moment when Meryl bought the girls pajamas. And they kind of looked at the pajamas like, really, a Christmas gift called pajamas? And Meryl in the moment, which Meryl can do, gets super exuberant, and she kind of leans into her seven on the Enneagram, and she's high energy enthusiast. And she said, yes, girls, yes, it's from Nordstrom. As if that was going to make any difference to them whatsoever. But since then, whenever we have this kind of garment moment, which incidentally is where my pants are from, thank you, my wife, it is this 
oh, it's Nordstrom. Now, do you see what God does in that moment? He literally changes Joseph entirely. In a fleeting moment, he moved from prison, downcast, dark, black, distressed, angry, resentful, and God now re-robes him. My boy had a a Nordstrom moment last week. He's had his story and um, works for a marketing agency and Meryl took him shopping and got him some clothes amongst elsewhere and he paid for them uh, at Nordstrom. And uh, so he gets a call from his boss who says, I have been asked to be at a fundraiser for one of the politicians in Newport Beach. I can't go. Will you go? And T with his mullet and his earrings and his tattoos like, really? Really? I have to be the one who represents you. And he put his Nordstrom suit on and he arrived there and he said, Dad, I was decades younger than everyone and they were all millionaires and billionaires. And he said, I walked around the room speaking to these very rich men and women. I said, my boy, that's your Joseph moment. That's where God picks you up, cleans you off, redresses you, puts you in mullet and all into a room of people you do not deserve to be with. You drive an old Prius and you come and live with your dad and mom. Hell, that's not like millionaires and billionaires. You know what I'm saying? What about you? Well, what's that moment to you? Are you patient in the spirit enough to say, Oh God, this is hurting like crazy. I feel lonely, dejected. I, I'm subjected to the worst things. I'm falsely accused. I see people promoted around me. I see Brady and Cat preaching. And what about me? I've never preached in this church. And, 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 and I see little Haley leading worship like, like a megaphone. Like, ah, you know? I see all of that. What about me, Lord? Why am I the invisible one? Why am I the forgotten one? And God goes, shh. Your Nordstrom moment will come. But will you trust me? God's work in Joseph was not finished. We know that. He had to forgive his brothers, which is a whole teaching series in its own right. But God had taken him on a journey that prepared him for that moment. Where are you in that story? Where are you? Where am I? So we pray together, please. Thank you for being so gracious. I know it was a long preach. Thank you for giving me room to do that. Father, I don't know why this one-off talk parachuting into different Joseph moments will make sense to us, but I can trust you that it will. As Brandon, leading us in the pre-gathering prayer, said, shh, God is in the trees. Would you whisper in the trees to us right now? Would you make sense of where we are right now and can I open my hands and let go and fall into your loving arms